Hello, this is Daryl Castle with today's Castle Report. Today is Friday, May 24, 2019, the Friday before Memorial Day, just a three-day weekend for most people. But for us, a chance to pause and remember to that end. We continue with part two of our hero's journey to honor some of those who fought World War II and made that hero's journey. The early days of the war were desperate times for naval and marine aviators trying to defend their ships from attack in the Pacific, the only fighter aircraft they had. For the first 15 months or so of the war was the F-4F Wildcat, which was vastly inferior to its main opponent, the Japanese Zero. The Wildcat did not have automatically retractable landing gear, so the gear had to be manually retracted by the pilot. Turning a crank in the cockpit that operated a set of wheels and pulleys, it was less agile less maneuverable, and slower than the Zero, which all added up to a lot of dead American pilots. The pilots used to joke that the Wildcat was so bad when they launched from the deck of the carrier, their aircraft should immediately be reported as missing. One man, a man named Jimmy Thack, decided he would do something to change that. He was a lieutenant commander at the time. Thack said even though the aircraft was inferior to its Japanese counterpart, The men who flew them were not. He picked two flyers from his squadron and invited them to a training session in his quarters. He took a few matchsticks and laid out for the other two pilots his tactical method, that method of changing tactics to accommodate the aircraft's strengths and weaknesses, redefined American fighter tactics and saved countless American lives, as well as protected their ships from destruction. His theory was that since their aircraft were inferior to the enemy's aircraft, tactics had to change to even the score. His tactical change became known as the Thack Weave, whereby two Wildcats would weave back and forth in a kind of figure-eight fashion, thus making it almost impossible for a Zero to get on the Wildcat's tail without exposing itself to attack from the other Wildcat. The three of them went up and practiced the maneuver over and over till they had it down, then they taught it to the rest of the squadron and the other squadrons on their ship, the USS Lexington. Jimmy Thack went on to become the best-known tactician in the Navy. He developed what became known as the Big Blue Blanket to help protect ships from kamikaze attack later in the war. Jimmy was born in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, just across the river from where I live now. He did about everything a good hero can do during his journey throughout his 40 years in the Navy. He was a theoretical innovator, a tactical genius. In the last year of the war, he was a task force operations officer, and during the Korean War, he was an aircraft carrier commander. During the Cold War, he contributed to the Navy's anti-submarine warfare efforts, and there is still an award named for him for excellence at the Navy's any submarine school. He was also a great fighter pilot, credited with many enemy aircraft, including six in one day. He served on the staff of Vice Admiral John McCain, that's the senator's father, and was aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay for the Japanese surrender. He was eventually promoted to four-star rank and commanded the U.S. naval operations in Europe for a while. He retired from the Navy in 1967 with 40 years of service. He died April 15, 1981, four days before his 76th birthday. Thus 
completing his journey. One of those men sitting at Jimmy Thack's table to learn about the Thack weave was Edward Butch O'Hare. You might recognize that name if you've ever flown into Chicago because O'Hare Airport is named for Butch O'Hare, although he was not from Chicago. He was from St. Louis, never ever lived in Chicago. His father, Edgar, or E.J., was a lawyer who had a client who was commissioner of the International Greyhound Racing Association. He hired E.J. To, for a patent on a, a mechanical rabbit device to be used in dog racing. E.J. eventually bought the rights to the from the client's widow and took his rabbit to Chicago. The man who ran Chicago at that time was Al Capone. He and E.J. hit it off and were soon running all the tracks around Chicago. They also branched out into Boston and Miami and made huge amounts of money. But the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929 was pretty much the final straw for E.J., I suppose. Making money was good, but cold-blooded mass murder was bad. E.J. eventually grew weary of working with thugs and gangsters, and he turned over all of Capone's financial records to the FBI. Down went Capone for income tax evasion, and off he went to Alcatraz. Butch had to live down E.J.'s mob connection, but... E.J. did eventually put an end to Capone's operation. Meanwhile, E.J. had always been interested in flying, so he got one of his politician's friends to recommend Butch to the Naval Academy, where he was determined to become a naval aviator while Butch was at the Academy. E.J. was driving home from his dog track in St. Louis in his new Lincoln. When he was killed by a shotgun blast from a passing car, Butch graduated from the Naval Academy and was accepted into aviation as a fighter pilot. The airplane he was trained on was, of course, the Wildcat that we just talked about. He had almost a year in the Wildcat before the war started, so he became an expert flyer, an aircraft gunnery expert, through months of training. When the war broke out, he was assigned to the USS Lexington and to Jimmy Thack's squadron. Butch fought hard to defend the Lexington from Japanese attack, but the older carriers were particularly vulnerable to attack from the air. Due to their wooden decks and to the sheer numbers of attacking aircraft, there is only so much anti-aircraft fire that can be put up to stop a determined attack, so the fighters have to do it in the air. But if the attackers get through the outer fighter screen, then the fighters continue. To continue their attack would mean exposure to friendly anti-aircraft fire. Butch and his wingman were up on patrol over the Lexington one day when they were informed that a flight of 18 Japanese bombers from the Japanese base at Rabaul were inbound to the Lexington. The bombers were divided into two attack waves of nine each, separated by just a few minutes. The bombers were divided in, into the first wave and the second wave, and uh, the two pilots attacked the first wave coming in and shot down six bombers and turned the rest around, forcing them to join the incoming group in the second wave. Butch's wingman's guns would not fire, so Butch fought the bombers alone all the way to the anti-aircraft range of the Lexington. When they reached that area, there were six bombers left, and Butch dove after them into his own friendly fire. But not a single bomber reached the ship. 
The captain of the Lexington recommended Butch for commendation for single-handedly saving his aircraft carrier, but Butch said, no, I don't deserve a medal because every pilot on this ship would have done the same thing. The captain said, well, maybe so, Butch, but you actually did it. So he recommended him for the Medal of Honor. President Roosevelt was in dire need of heroes at that time, and Butch made a great one before his recruiting posters on March 4, 1942. Butch learned that he was front-page news across the United States. Remember then, folks, in those years, the front pages of newspapers were the news. The newspapers reported that President Roosevelt was going to award this handsome young aviator the Medal of Honor. On April 21, 1942, Butch and his wife Rita came to the White House where he was awarded the medal and promoted to lieutenant commander. He went back to St. Louis and had a full military parade. In June 1942, he returned to combat and took command of his old squadron. November of 43, his squadron was assigned to the USS Enterprise because the Lexington was lost in the Battle of the Coral Sea. The squadron now had the new fighters, the new F-4F Hellcats, which were more than a match for the Zero. He was leading a mission supporting the Marine landings at Tarawa when he was shot down and killed. His death was apparently due to a series of mistakes by others, but nevertheless, he was dead. In St. Louis, his mother Selma saw a newspaper article that said several Japanese planes had been shot down with the loss of only one American. That's my Eddie, she said. I know it is. Paul Tibbetts, a good friend of Butch's since their high school days at Western Military Academy, wrote his condolences to Butch's mother. Paul became a pilot as well, but in the Air Force, or Army Air Corps as it was called then, one and a half years later, after his friend and classmate's death, Paul Tibbetts flew a B-29 named for his mother. Enola Gay over Japan and introduced the world to the atomic age, August 6, 1945. All these men are dead now, but I'm glad to be able to remember them in this way. I've enjoyed bringing you their hero's journeys the next time you fly through O'Hare. Think about how it got that name. I could continue this series for the next year and not begin to tell all their stories, but alas, we must return to the modern world of identity politics. Theirs was a simpler time than ours. The war made everyone a patriot, and at the same time, took away their innocence and youth. Next Friday then, God willing, we return to the modern world of crisis, terror, chaos, and confusion. At least that's the way I see it, folks. Until next time, this is Daryl Castle. Thanks for listening.